Good morning. Good morning. I'm Bob Shirley, and I've been happy to worship here since the year 2000. And I'd like to read this morning from John chapter 18. So if you turn in your Bibles with me, and if you don't have your Bible, there's a Bible under one of the seats in front of you. And you'll find that on page 904. John chapter 18, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you always for this day and for your great love for us, your mercy, and your grace. And now, as Jason comes, I pray that by your spirit, by your spirit, that you would empower him to bring light to this message of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. May you open our hearts and our minds to understand it and learn more about you, dear God. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. For three years they had journeyed together, side by side, Jesus and the Twelve. For three years they were witnesses to the power of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the boldness of Jesus. He had cared for them, He had taught them, He had been their friend. 
He had rebuked them when necessary, often. He had loved them. Oh, how he loved them. That very night, he had loved them according to the end, according to John. Or loved them to the end, according to John. He had washed their feet. All of their feet. All twelve. The work of a servant. He had shared the Passover meal with them. All of them. All twelve. He had wept in prayer. Prayer for himself. Prayer for the Father's will to be done. And prayer for them. And here we find ourselves at the beginning of what appears to be the end of Jesus' ministry and influence in the world. Most shockingly, the end appears to be brought about by one of these twelve who walked with Him. How could it be that a person could walk side by side with Jesus? God made flesh for three years and then decide to betray Him. Yet here we are, right by the brook Kidron, just outside or even possibly within the Garden of Gethsemane. Kidron, the location of David's flight from his betrayer Absalom, his son. The place where Solomon told Shimei, you can go this far and no further. The place where the kings Asa, Josiah, and Hezekiah removed and destroyed idols that had plagued the nation of Judah. The place where the Lord promised through the prophet Jeremiah that there would be a future glory yet to come when He makes a new covenant with His people. A new covenant that was about to be enacted. In this place, the end game begins. The betrayer arrives, a band of soldiers and officers in tow. This morning, as we re-enter the book of John, I want us to see a couple of things. Two questions I want to answer this morning. Who is really in control of this situation? And what is he doing? Who is really in control And what is he doing? A couple items of note before we get into those two questions. I'm sure you noticed. I don't know if you read this throughout the week. I would encourage you to do so in future weeks. Next week we'll be in uh, verses 12 through 27. Uh, Frank, who was up here earlier, is going to be sharing from the Word uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. But John's account of this scene includes some details that other gospel accounts do not. And likewise, it omits some details that other Gospels include. I think that's one of the beauties of having four Gospels. They're not four identical accounts. There's a lot of overlapping information. They are not, however, four identical accounts, nor are they contradictory accounts. They're complementary accounts. There are different perspectives focusing on different facets of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. While I will mention a couple details pulled from other Gospels, I want to spend time this morning 
endeavoring to focus on what John focuses on in this passage. Who is in control of this situation and what is he doing? John gives no record of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as recorded in the other three Gospels. But it's safe for us to assume that this scene takes place immediately following that prayer. The prayer where Jesus cried out as His closest friends wept or slept. He, he wept, they slept. He wept tears of blood, crying out, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. This cup would not pass, as Jesus would acknowledge in today's passage. When John says, we start, so if you have your Bibles open, now we're going to dive into chapter 18. 18.1, John starts the passage with these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he seems to be referring to everything that Jesus said and prayed in, in chapters 14 through 17. John gives us these prayers that no other gospel writer does. John shares in, in 14 to 17 as we preached through, when was that? Summertime. Summertime. Judas has agreed to hand Jesus over to the chief priests and the Pharisees. It's a, it's a remarkable account, isn't it? Like, walked with him for three years, and, and now he's going to turn. Judas has agreed to hand Jesus over. John gives no record of this encounter, as other gospel writers do. They've formulated a plan, and here the plan is going to be carried out. And I want you to note the wickedness of Judas. The wickedness of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the wickedness of Satan, who is behind it all, as we saw when Judas took the morsel of bread and Satan entered into him to complete the act that he had already set in motion. But note the wickedness of this scene. Three things I want you to see from, from this passage uh, about the wickedness. First of all, they come by night, Right? This all takes place at night. The book of John, a huge theme in the book of John is light and darkness, right? He starts right, right out of chapter 1, right? If you look back, hold your place there in, in chapter 18. But if you look back in chapter 1, verse 5, well, verse 4 and 5, In Him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you read through John, just read through the book of John and think, look, look for the light and darkness. Look, when, when does Nicodemus approach Jesus? Night. There's, there's, there's this theme over and over that I don't have time to develop, but they come by night. We are clearly meant to see and understand that wicked people do their deeds in the darkness. Darkness is a protective covering for our sins. Nobody sees me. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Of course, we know that to be an illusion. Matt was just sharing about that in Sunday school, right? When you pray to God, I'm struggling with this thing. He says, I know. I see it. I watched you. 
Here in the darkness, this group comes. They could have come after Jesus any time, but they chose the darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Jesus said that in John chapter 3. Jesus' arrest and quote-unquote trial will all happen under the cover of darkness. By morning, he'll be presented to Pilate. He'll be ready for crucifixion. So they come by night. They come ready for battle, right? Verse 3 tells us that Judas had procured a band of soldiers along with some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. This band of soldiers would have been a Roman cohort, a peacekeeping cohort, quote-unquote. It could have been, I'm not saying it will be, was this much, it could have been five or 600 soldiers. Or it could have been some contingent. But it was a large number. They come with a large number of soldiers and, peace, and officers of the, the chief priests and Pharisees. They come for battle. They come with their lanterns, their torches, and their weapons. They are coming prepared to fight. And then thirdly, they come to a very special place. Verse 2 tells us, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Most likely this is the property of somebody who supported Jesus' ministry. Judas was betraying Jesus in a place where they knew intimate fellowship and friendship. Where they had spent many times together. Judas said, yeah, I know where he'll be. I'll take you there. He betrayed his friend in a place where they had shared community. Where he had been loved by Jesus. A place they had often been together. A place where moments before Jesus was sweating drops of blood as he poured out of his heart to his heavenly Father. Do you see how evil this is? Darkness coming for battle and, and going to one of the most intimate places he could go to take care of it. Earlier that night, Jesus had washed Judas' feet. He had shared the Passover meal with him. In this very place, on this very ground, they had shared many moments such that Judas knew where he would find him. What a wicked betrayal. This is wickedness. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see, uh, among other things in this passage, Jesus knows what it is to betray, be betrayed in the most painful ways. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who is familiar with suffering and familiar with temptation yet without sin, it includes the intimate knowledge of what it's like to be hurt by those closest to you. Maybe some here today are feeling that hurt. And maybe it's an ongoing betrayal or a difficulty in forgiving a past betrayal. Be reminded today, brothers and sisters in Christ, that your Savior truly knows what it's like. We don't just say like, oh, He knows how you feel. He knows what it's like. 
he was betrayed, though he had done no wrong. He bore our betrayal for our salvation. Judas wasn't the only one to betray Jesus, was he? We're in a room full of betrayers. And he has loved us. And he is familiar with our pain when we have been betrayed, when we have been hurt. Now, a question that arises in my mind is, why did Judas do this? Why did Judas do this? John offers no direct explanation as to the internal workings of Judas. I, I, and I understand, there is a big why. We're going to get to the big why Judas did this. But Judas, in his own heart and mind, what was going on in there? We see in, in chapter 12 that Judas is angry. Why is he angry in John chapter 12? Do you remember? Go ahead. Class participation. Money. He's angry about money. What about money? Yes. So, so Mary comes and anoints Jesus. You know, wash, washes his feet with this expensive ointment. How expensive was the ointment, approximately? About a year's worth of pay, right? And she comes and she, she anoints his body and... Uh, the, the response of the disciples, and specifically here in chapter 12 of John, it's pointed out, Judas' response is, why are you wasting this? Why, are we, why this waste? Which in itself is a ridiculous question. How much is too much worship to give to Jesus? But why this waste? And why did, why did Judas say it was wasteful? What could be done with that money? We can give it to the poor, right? Did Judas want to give it to the poor? Judas wanted to give it to somebody else. To Judas, yes. Judas was taking money from the treasury. But this seemed to be the final straw, that Jesus is going to allow this waste to happen using this costly ointment that he could have sold and got a year's worth of money in his pocket because he was the treasurer. I think the bottom line is that Judas did this because Jesus did not meet his standard of who Jesus should be. Judas wanted to follow Jesus on Judas' terms. Judas wanted to follow Jesus as long as it was beneficial to one person, Judas. And that's not how this setup works. When the Lord calls us, He calls us to come and die. To turn from self-worship. Find forgiveness in Jesus. And by God's grace, endeavor to follow Him on His terms. Right? He doesn't say, I'm good, you know, follow me as long as it's advantageous for you. But that was Judas' heart position. When Jesus stopped being beneficial... Get rid of them. He calls us to follow Him on His terms, to submit to Him when we don't understand His ways. And there may be some here this morning who profess to be followers of Jesus, but your underlying truth is, I'll follow Him as long as it's beneficial on an earthly level to me. 
I was, I was praying yesterday, and I was praying specifically uh, for our teenagers and our young adults. Um, and this, it's a specific burden of my own because my, my late teenage life and my early 20s, uh, I was absolutely Judas. I, I was Judas. I, I was the one who put on a face when it was convenient, when it was advantageous, when it was beneficial to me to look like a Christian, to act like a Christian, to make everybody think I was a Christian, and, and, and to see the life that I was living outside of the walls of the church was entirely hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And our teens and our young adults, I know, I know the pool of the world. And I know the pool also of walking into these doors and wanting to make everybody think that you're just a good Christian. And I just want to encourage you and tell you that I am praying for you. That what the Lord is doing in your hearts and in your minds, that He will continue this work and that you would never feel the need to act like something that you're not when you walk in these doors. Right? Do we want our next generation to be raised up thinking we got to act like Christians when we're at church and then we got to be something totally different when we're out there? Is that what we're hoping for? Is that what we're aiming for? Is that what we're praying toward? No. So teens, kids, it's okay to be real about what's going on in your lives. It's okay to ask questions. I'm not sure if I believe this. The world is calling me to something that seems a lot more tasty. Ask your questions. Be real about the doubts that you have. Be honest about the struggles that you have. Christ has answers for all of them. But I have prayed that you would not be like I was. I'll follow him as long as it's beneficial on an earthly level to me. By the grace of God, I didn't end like Judas. All by the grace of God. He calls us to follow him on his terms. He calls us to trust him in all things. Not to bail out and go turn coat when he doesn't act like we want him to. He is the Lord and we are not. And that may sound harsh, but stick with me because we're going to see how he reveals him. Yeah, he's God and we are not. And wait till we see what he does as God. So I ask, is Judas in charge of this situation? Is Judas running the show? How about the chief priests and the Pharisees? They got, they got a, a, this band of soldiers. Finally, we got our man. We hate this guy. He has been such a thorn in our side. They've been seeking ways to destroy him. He's been a threat to them. They have a good thing going. And here this Jesus wants to upend everything they're doing. He wants to expose their hypocrisy and remove their authority. Who does he think he is? Now they've got him. Are the chief priests and the Pharisees in charge here? What do you think? It wasn't very convincing. 
How about Peter? Good old Peter. He told Jesus just a few hours earlier, right? Even if every one of the other disciples flees from you, I never would. As a matter of fact, Jesus, I would lay down my life for you. And now is his time to show it. So as Jesus is about to be arrested, Peter draws his sword, probably like a little knife that they would have kept on the inside of their, their, their leg and pulled it out. He draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Now Malchus, this is the only time you hear his name in any of the Gospels also. I don't have time to talk about why, but you can ask me later. Cuts off Malchus' ear. Now I think we're supposed to gather from that that Peter was actually aiming at a different spot. Peter was not like, let me cut this guy's ear off. Let's see what happens. <laughs> he was aiming for the head, and he missed. Jesus stops him from causing further violence. And we know from other gospel accounts, not here, that he also heals Malchus' ear, right? He takes the time to heal him while he's being arrested. So is Peter in charge of this scene? I'd say probably not. I'm not going to steal Frank's thunder for next week, but Peter is only a short period of time away from being considerably less brave. Peter wanted to be brave. He was brave when Jesus was next to him. But Peter was relying on Peter. We lack resources when we rely on ourselves for courage. When we buy the lie of self-sufficiency. Is Peter running the show? I'm guessing that you're all scholarly enough to know that it's not Judas. It's not the chief priests and Pharisees. It's not the Roman cohort. It's not Peter running the show. Who is in charge even in this most dark moment of pain and sadness? Even as he had just wept over what was about to come upon him? Make no mistake, brothers and sisters. Jesus is in absolute control of this moment. Judas' plan was God's plan. There is a band of soldiers coming for him. We're back in John 18 now. There's a band of soldiers coming for him. Armed with torches and weapons. Let's, say, let's go low end. Let's say it's 100 people coming for 12. Coming with torches and weapons, and I think it's so wonderful to note in verse 4. They don't do they find Jesus after a thorough search? No. Verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. I think we, we need to see that. He came forward. He didn't go hide in the garden. Does that sound familiar? The first Adam hid in the garden hoping to hide from God because of his wickedness and evil. The second Adam steps forward in the garden to face down wickedness and evil. Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Literally, in the Greek, ego eimi. You know what that means? I am. Now, commentators differ on this. 
I, don't, I, I think it's absolutely clear from what happens here that he is making a statement. He is saying, I am is here. I am. Exodus. Who should I say is sending me? Tell him, I am sent you, Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. Jesus says, I am, and these, these soldiers, they fall back. Can you imagine this scene? They're coming to arrest him. He comes out to them. They say they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. They fall down. That's amazing. He is the great I am. They were seeking to destroy the one who is fully God and fully man. They were making war with God. They fall to the ground and again he asks them whom they seek. And again he repeats who he is. Three times in this passage he says, I am. I am he. He came forward. He asserted his authority. Do you see this? He says in verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Who does he think he is? Who talks to, to their arresters like this? The, comes, the people who are coming to capture him. There's a band of soldiers. And Jesus tells them the terms by which he'll be arrested. Right? This Roman cohort is not used to being talked to like this. They're used to being submitted to and please don't hurt me. Please don't kill me. Please be kind to me. Peter committed an act of war. Right? They could have said, well, listen, we came to do this peacefully, but your boy, he just cut, tried to kill one of our soldiers. We're the high priest's servant. So now it's a battle. Or we're taking them all into, into custody. Jesus says, no, you're not. If you came for me, take me, let them go. And they do. They stand down. Because Jesus is ultimately in charge of this moment. Jesus tells Peter to stand down. Right? He, does, he says, put your sword away, man. First of all, like, come on. If I wanted to, I could make a battle happen. And it would be bad. And it'd be better than your little sword, Peter. This is not Peter's time. Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, the great I Am, is in charge. It is good for us to remember this. That even when it does not appear to be so, the Lord is in control. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Have you seen that in your lives? That there are situations where you say, I do not see it. I'm not seeing it, Lord. But he reminds you, I am in control. I am good. I can be trusted. Even when we think all is lost, all is bad, for the children of God, it is a true comfort to know that the Lord is in control over the most wicked darkness that this world has to offer. It's in our faces this week, right? We're watching the news and we're saying, this, this could be awful. 
It is already awful. It could be very awful. The Lord is in control. Darkness will not prevail. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer in Christ, I just want, to, I want you to hear this as a word of challenge. The Lord is in control. Whether you acknowledge it or not, He is in control of all things, even when you don't see it or believe it. Maybe this week has been a week of great fear. I think for a person who is not trusting in Christ, who, who does not have the hope of eternity, fear is absolutely appropriate right now. COVID, war, whatever it may be, fear is appropriate. But I want you to know that the Lord is absolutely in control. When you do not see it, when you do not believe it, He is still in control. And He is the one whom we will ultimately answer to. What did we do? Knowing that He was the one who was in control of all things, who was sovereign over all things, what did we do in response to that? Our control over things is an illusion. His control over things is real. But I want you to see more than that about him. He's not just in control. But I want you to see in this scene what he is doing with his control. The question we are left with is what is he going to do with his sovereign control? It's been the theme of our service this morning. And I pray that in our closing briefer point, you'll receive true comfort from the Lord to see that Jesus is protecting his people. He is a great protector. And there's both an earthly and an eternal protection spoken of in this passage. We see the earthly protection of Jesus in his demand that they be let go. And it says in uh, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Do you know that that's still true today? All who are given to the Father, or to Jesus by the Father, of all of them, He will lose not one. Jesus is the good shepherd. He protects His sheep. When He prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas. Jesus has kept and guarded them for these three years, and he will not abandon them here. The battle is his to fight, not theirs. Peter is to put his sword in its sheath because this battle is not going to be fought this way. Jesus will protect his flock by submitting to arrest. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we know the earthly care and protection of Jesus. We know that He has given the Holy Spirit to keep and guard all who believe in Him. That is the promise of the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, you should look at it. It talks about the brook Kidron. 
in the context of the new covenant promise that is given to us in Christ. He has given us His Holy Spirit who allows us to be and do what we cannot be and do on our own. We can't conjure it up. We can't make it happen. What we could not do, God has done. We don't keep ourselves safe from spiritual harm, but we trust in the One who does. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful paths, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And here we are reminded that Jesus will do whatever it takes to protect His flock. And that's still true today. That includes and absolutely centers on the eternal protection He offers here. Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Only a few minutes earlier, He had been weeping over the cup. But note the progression. Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. And now here he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He was fully submitted to the will of his Father. And he tells Peter here, we're not fighting the battle this way. We're going to fight the battle by me drinking the cup that the Father gave me. The Father gave him this cup. What is this cup that Jesus speaks of? It is the cup of the wrath of God against sin. Jesus would not fight this band of soldiers because they were going to be the means by which He was led into the real battle that was going to take place. The chief priests and the Pharisees thought they were doing away with their enemy, but in reality they were the tool by which God would destroy His enemies. This was not Peter's moment. He couldn't bear it, nor could any of the disciples. Jesus alone could meet this moment. It was time to drink the cup. Send the disciples to safety and drink the cup. Though he had no sin, nothing in that cup belonged to him. The wrath of God against sin, Jesus had none of it. But he was going to drink this cup, though he had done nothing wrong. How does the good shepherd protect his sheep? By laying down his life for them and for us. If you ever wonder what lengths God would go to in order to display his love and protective care for his people, look here. Do you ever doubt God's love for you? It's okay to say, sometimes I do. I mean, it's not good bad that we doubt that. But if you do, where, where do we go? Here would be a great place to go. There is absolutely no way that any of us can stand before a holy God one day and be declared right in His sight unless Jesus drinks this cup. For you to drink the cup 
would mean paying the penalty for all of your sin, all of your rebellion against God's authority. For you to drink the cup means eternal damnation because you can never drink it to the bottom. For all that you have done against the holy God, all of our offenses against an eternal one deserve eternal punishment. For you to drink the cup means eternal punishment. This is what awaits those who reject the offer of Jesus Christ. A refusal to allow Jesus to drink the cup means you saying, I can handle the cup. I can stand the test. But the psalmist reminds us rightly, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? None of us. None is righteous. None has hope. But the psalmist continues, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Jesus will drink the cup that forgiveness might be ours. Protection from the true penalty of our sin. Do you see how great is his protective care? That he's saying, not only will I protect you on an earthly level, but I will protect you from what could harm you from now until the end of eternity by drinking this cup. I will drink this cup so that you can enjoy eternal delight, protection from the just judgment of God, protection from the accusations of the enemy. When the enemy of our souls goes before the Lord and says, look at, look at all this. Look at this record of debt that stands against Jason. The Father says, paid in full at the cross of Christ. It was nailed to the cross. When Jesus drank the cup, we are protected eternally. All who put their trust in Jesus, all who turn from their sin, who say, who recognize that their sin separates them from God, even today, my sin, it's worthy of an eternal punishment. But Christ came to drink the cup. All who believe will be counted righteous based on his sacrificial death, based on his drinking the cup. And when he drank that cup in his death on the cross, death did not hold him down. He rose from the grave victorious over sin. The penalty had been paid and victory had been won so that all who believe might have their penalty paid and their victory won and their hope eternal, secure. That's how much he is protecting us in this moment. It's amazing. All who believe. Age zero to age 100 and... I don't know how old the oldest person on earth is, but till the day you die. All who believe. I don't even know where I am. But we're going to wrap it up. The disciples in John 18 are reminded... That when Jesus is with you, you're safe. Do you know that? When Jesus is with you, you are safe. Now and forever safe. Friends, the betrayer doesn't have the last word in this passage. 
The angry crowd doesn't have the last word in this passage. Peter doesn't have the last word in this passage. The last word belongs to Jesus. He is. And He is in control. And He is the protector of His people now and into eternity. He drank the cup so that we could share in His protective care forever. Rejoice in that this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your protective care for your flock. We can't keep our hold. We can't make ourselves endure. We can't save ourselves. We can't forgive our own sins. We can't have hope of eternal life because of our sins. And you have made provision for all of that. Thank you for your protective care. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that maybe today would be the day of salvation for some. That cup has been drunk clean, drunk to the dregs, to the bottom, for all who believe in the finished work of Christ. They can have hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may we never grow weary of rejoicing in the gospel message. And when we are afraid, or when we wonder if you are with us, or if you care for us, or if you're protecting us, may we look at this work of Jesus and be reminded of your great love and care. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.